Hey, can you guys imagine uh, if you were training for the pipeline where you would go to get some equipment? Like you don't even know what to get. You know, just know that there's going to be swimming, not tying, that kind of stuff involved in it. Dude, well, it's really specific stuff too, right? Like you can't just get any rope. You can't just go to Walmart and get any fins. When I was training for the pipeline, you had to like, it was like an underground fight club. It was like I was doing a drug deal. I met a dude behind a building one time. He's like, hey, man. You need some, you need some rocket fins. Like I, I just didn't have anywhere that I could go. Jared, is there, is there anywhere that we could go? Maybe, maybe a whole bundle to get us started. <laughs> you mean like an aspect war bundle from attack Elite? I mean, now we're you talking. Could go there. I, you could go to attack Elite. You can get your entire aspect war bundle. I heard they just got back into stock. I heard they can get there in as fast as three days. You can get your, yourself on your little path to being an aspect war operator inside of business week that's not too bad you decide on monday you're training on friday that's pretty good bob's your uncle and you're good to go you get your high volume mass you could also get rucks or the the old alice frames and you can get body armor anything you need not just for aspect war either you could do it for rangers uh green berets or even navy seals and marsoc so go check them out yeah, yeah. and that's attack elite fitness so it's attack a-t-a-c-l-e-t-e dot com that's attackleet.com. Go get your training gear today. <laughs> and also use One's Ready as the promo code. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the One's Ready podcast. You're in the team room. It's Trent and I. We're crushing things per usual. No, actually, we're not. We just spent the last five or 10 minutes working on technical issues. So that uh, this this straw organization that, that you think we have our stuff together, we don't. Um, so, yeah. Uh, today's guest is actually Chief Tommy Case. Um, I'm going to throw it out there just because we were joking about it, but I'm going to say war hero, right? Is that, uh, is that what we're doing? <laughs> That's what you're doing. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Just see how many times we can put war hero oh in there. Oh, my God. Good God. <laughs> it's going to be the but, shortest uh, podcast ever. No, Tommy Case is a uh, TAC P um, by trade. Dude, you've been doing this for a long time. So why don't you give us a little bit about it? background about yourself and then we'll go into all the other kind of good stuff, you know, get the, the bona fides out of the way. Sure. Well, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on here. This is a, a pretty popular podcast. And when I have uh, uh, general officers come to me and say what kind of fans they are of the podcast, that's a testament to what you guys produce and put out. So I appreciate that for the community and the brotherhood and, the, and to some extent, the sisterhood out there. Um, yeah, dude. So yes. So I want to put the disclaimer out there now before I get the, does this dude eat, a, eat a, sit in a bakery all day, um, cut outs, <laughs> but you know that I am on the verge of retirement and like most of us in, at this age range, we are broken, broken men and sometimes doing podcasts is even physically painful. Um, <clears throat> so that being said, I came in in 97, man, and. And I, there was, it was peacetime other, th other than some Kosovo type stuff going on. And, uh, I was married to my first wife, had a brand new son that was born. And to be honest with you, I did not join out of patriotic fervor. I am a patriot they, you know, I'm, I think we all are, uh, sitting in this room here or these three rooms here, but I, I joined because I needed health insurance, man. Like literally like I'd, I'd been to military college, New Mexico military Institute. It's a shout out because I love that place. Um, they help produce the type of person I am today, including my parents, of course. Um, and uh, I needed health insurance, man. I was working two jobs. I was, I was working at a health club called Tom, Tom, Tom Young's Fitness in Albuquerque. And I was working at a place called Ceramic King. And those are the places that literally, that Ceramic King is where you literally make the clay that people use to do their ceramics and put in their kiln and stuff like that. And it was, it was nice. It was, it was, it was awful, man. It was, chemicals and mixing and, and, and forklifts and all that kind of stuff. So I, I needed to do something that was going to provide for my young family at the time. So I, so I enlisted in the air force, um, go through your whole process. You go down to maps on the stuff. And this is way before we had any type of, uh, cohesive aspect war unity thing across the four, um, if it sees it time, we're all kind of on our own little pockets doing our own thing. I think CC and PJ, P, P, CCT and PJ are a little more tight knit with their in-doc program back then. So I went, I took the ASVAB and I was like the recruiter's wet dream, man. I was like, Hey, I want to join the air force. Where do I sign? He's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. I have to sell this to you. I'm like, you don't got to sell me nothing, man. I am ready to go. This is my situation. 
So I did the ASVAB, and I'm like, you did good on the ASVAB. What do you want to do? Here's what you qualify for. And it said one of the things was nuclear weapons apprentice. So nuclear weapons apprentice at the time was basically a, a rocket engine mechanic. I was like, man, I could do that for four years, and I can get out and get a kick-ass job with NASA. Hindsight being 2020, with SpaceX and everything goes, everything else that's going on these days, I chose poorly. Uh, just kidding. Um <laughs> so I go down to MEPS and they're like, and you know, and you have your, your L and O down there. And she says, she's an E6. She's like, uh, well, if you want to do that nuclear weapons apprentice thing, you need to be, you need to leave on this date for basics. So you have your tech school reservation, yada, yada, yada. And I did that reported to basic. I can't remember if it was week two or whatever it was where you go down and they break you off. They say, go find your career, career field counselor. And I went went into this went into this room with this with this I think it was another female. She says, "You're open general, man." I was like, "What?" Like, no, that's the reason why I had to leave on this day at this time. Blah 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 blah. She's like, "Don't know what to tell you. You're open general. Go downstairs and see the uh, recruiter investigations." I believe is what she called it. So I went downstairs, and the, the guy down there is like, "Oh, you got a degree in criminal justice. Why don't you become a security forces guy?" And I don't know anything, you know. And I'm like, "That sounds great." He's like, "Up." Uh, Career field's full, man. Can't do that. He says, so we can either release you from your contract and go home, or you can just stay the course and just see what happens. Trent, I see you're raising your hand. I have so many questions. You and me. Both. It, it, the, there are people that actually investigate recruiters, Seriously? and security forces was full at the same time. Like, I don't know what's going on. Well, this was like that's a- how I became your words, not mine, a war hero, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, um, so yeah, so, so I, I, I told the guys like, you know, I, my grandfather had just passed away. He was in the hospital before I left. We were really, really close. And I, you know, and they said, you can go home, but you'll recycle two weeks for his funeral. I was like, no, he was, a, he was a veteran. He would not have wanted that. Um, spent two years in the Philippines back in the forties. And, uh, so I said, no, I'll stay the course. Best decision I ever made. So we're doing our little field exercise. It was pretty lame back then. I think it was an overnighter of the tents. He did some shooting and stuff with the M16s and 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 the the confidence course. I think I think what it was. And um, came back. We got pulled inside for this briefing. They had a combat control briefing. Hey, you want to jump out of airplanes and do surveys and travel the world and do cool guy stuff? Here, there's this. I was like, that sounds okay. Then we had the other briefer come in. Warren Gardner comes in. I'll never forget him. Comes in. He says. Air to mud, you want to jump out of planes and blow shit up if I got a deal for you. Um, and the way he sold it, like I knew a little bit about like pararescue and in, in, in the combat control side by word of mouth, but I didn't never really invested in it. I think there's a small poster in the recruiter's office back in Albuquerque, but I never really invested any time of it. And, I, and he, when he said, jump out of airplanes and blow shit up, I was like, that sounds about right. Um, so I went, I got pulled aside, I filled it out, filled out some kind of form, I got put inside. Um, we got came back from the little field X and I went to this little tryout thing. It was me and a handful of other, other, other guys. And it was basically an army physical fitness test with pull-ups in it. So I did it. We all, all of us passed it. And he said, congratulations. You all been selected air quotes, um, selected and, and, uh, just make time to go down and change your contract at MPF or MPS, whatever they called it back then. So my training instructor, he gives me a, little pass thing and sends me down there. Of course, he tries to do this thing. He's just like, I don't know much about Tag P, but what I do know is it's pretty spooky. And I was like, what are you? What? It's like, not a haunted house. No, and, and you guys, <laughs> in your respective ones of the sides too, you experience the same thing where you're this the, the Air Force really romanticizes about the what the one Zulu world was, even though we weren't called that before. You know, and um, so I walked down to this to, to MPS and I was sitting in line and this um, this older African American lady, very grandmotherly, calls me up, you know, and she was very stereotypical. She's like, "Honey, let's get your contract changed. Do you really know what you're getting into?" I'm like, "I have absolutely no idea what I'm getting into, but I, it sure sounds better than, than than the other option or the lack of option I have." And she says, uh, "Okay, we got you, Sandra." I'm like, "Is there any way you could tell me what my job is going to be?" She's like, "Yeah, they already had you plugged in." I said, well, can you, can you show me? She's like, let me print it for you. And it's one of those, old, this is 97, man. So the laser printer with the little rip-off sides, right? You know, doing that thing. 
So I get this thing and I read it. And basically in the paragraph, the only thing that I got out of it was like, you were going to be flight line, flight line technician. You're going to be responsible for, for scraping grease off airplane parts. And man, yeah. fellas, I'll tell you, man, even at that moment when I had no clue I was getting into on my way to Herbert Field, I felt like I dodged the bullet. You know, and you know, fast forward twenty five and a half years, I've literally been dodging bullets. You know, and um, and so that's yeah. kind of the history of how I came to be um, this TACP guy. Um, and you know, I, my first assignment was at Fort Carson. I had really good supervisors, man. The NCOs that we had above us were all Gulf War dudes. Um, whether they did a whole lot or or did nothing. It doesn't matter, but even, you know, the generation back then, I know you guys can, can know what I'm talking about. Like you were kind of scared of them, you know, oh, yeah. you know, Thursdays yeah. was training day and they did not want air in the office, man. And you, we would go out to our Humvees and do system checks and get our radios and stuff. And we thought we were getting one over on the NCOs. We're like, well, we're just going to jump in our Humvees and head down to airburst range and just goof off for the day. Not even realizing that what we were doing was generating training for us. We're doing convoy ops. We're doing. We're talking on radios. Uh, we're doing vehicle nav. We're like doing all these things that we didn't even realize we were doing at the time. You know, um, we spent like again it was peacetime. We had two flights there. It was the Third Brigade Combat Team flight, which I was part of, and the Armored Cav Regiment Third Third ACR. And they were kind of getting all the love with the Kosovo rotations and, and Sarajevo and stuff like that, and the BCT not so much. I tried several times to get on some of those deployments just because I wanted to do something. Um, but no, I feel like our fate was beholden to national training center rotation after national training center rotation, just over and over and over again. So again, I, I had some really good NCYCs, you know, um, John Knight, Billy Burgum, um, Ben Bufkin, Nate Gesner, all those guys, just, um, Chet McLinn, freaking Ranger legend in the community, John Knight, the Ranger legend community, both, you know, support SF back in the day and, um, they really took me under their, under their wings. My, my second day at work, I hadn't even been back then. We used to do this thing called, uh, for our, for your army listeners out there, they'll know central issue facility. We go down the army warehouse and give us a bunch of eh, lame gear. And I think it was Ben Buffkin. He said, uh, Hey, what are you doing today? And airman case, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, he's like, you're going to the range today. I was like, well, okay, sorry. I don't have anything. He's like, well, find some body armor and a helmet. They're laying around here somewhere and let's go to the range. So my second day as a graduated TAC P at Fort Carson, I was on airburst range controlling air um, and doing mock airstrikes on targets out there. Granted, um, I was repeating what they told me to say, but man, what an environment, right? What an environment to come into, you know, and, you know, and, and it's, it's so cliche when we talk about, um, for every bad day I've had in the Air Force or every bad day I've had I've had as a TACB, I've had 30 good ones. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm on the verge of retirement here. This is my sunset tour. And I am getting out at a time where I firmly believe is a good time for me and Kathy because I'm getting out on a good with, with a good attitude. You know, I see too many yeah. guys that just kind of separate and retire, like, F this place or F the Air Force or F whatever. And I'm like, I'm getting out on a, on a good note. And I'm so happy with that. No, you definitely going out on a high note for sure. Uh, I mean, being the the ops group, you know, senior enlisted leader at Nellis um, with me, which is pretty awesome. Uh, you know, we were talking about it beforehand. Uh, the folks on Nellis, the commanders on Nellis really messed up when they hired me <laughs> to be at the weapon school, you to be at the 57th ops group, and then uh, command chief Tom Schaefer at the 57th wing. You have three aspect war dudes all on Nellis, and we don't conform that well. Well, I, <laughs> that could possibly I would, go wrong. That's right, Trent. Yeah. And I would also state that the 57th wing is probably one of the most, if not the most influential wing in the Air Force in regard, you know, way, the, the way Vegas, or the way Nellis goes, the way of the Air Force, right, is what they say, or something along those lines. But Nellis is really, outside of the 99th Air Base Wing and you know, them keeping track of water heaters and housing the MSG side, like the 57th wing produces for the Air Force um, and the way it influences the high-end fight, which obviously we're focused on now. 
Um, it's, it's, uh, I've learned a lot in the last year. That's definitely true. Um, I've been there a year now. Um, you know, we've had these conversations, peaches where you're like, dude, what about blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, trust me, you will get it figured out here in the near term coming out of, um, and S the ST world or the, you know, me, the ST slash ASOS world, you know? Um, so yeah, so I agree with you. <clears throat> so, so if we're going to go chronologically, which I, I kind of like, sure. you, you were doing NTC rotations and I, and I think people don't understand what that means and how awful that can be. What? And then like, what did you do for the, the years up until nine eleven? Yeah. So NTC national training center, actually, I, my group owns that unit now, the 12th combat training squadron out there in the middle of, um, it's literally the BFE of the army. Um, Fort Irwin, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, listeners know this, but it's a speck of dust in the middle of the Mojave desert. The the nearest town is roughly an hour and a half away. And, and, and I, you know, and my heart goes out to our families out there, um, as their group chief, you know, they, 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 they've got some significant challenges when it just comes to daycare and, and, and mom getting her teeth cleaned, man, it turns into an all-day affair. So I, I would be shameless plug for those guys. Just just think about that when you're going when you're headed out that way and you're dealing with the observer coach or trainers when you go out there as tack piece and integrate with your army. But um, the, literally, you, you 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 gear up, you roll with the army, you go to the national training center, you go into MDMP military decision making process. My dog just woke up and all the and all the things and you, and you. The, and you roll out to the field, and you're in the field for roughly about 10 to 14 days, give or take, living with the Army, integrating, advising, assisting with a little bit of um, um, saying continue dry, the training version of cleared hot, um, and controlling air, air out there. Um, but really, the biggest part is just the integration piece with the Army and letting the Army know who you are and what you bring to the fight. And it's a constant re-education process every two years because the Army um, – command or change the command just they rotate and, and the staff just rotates out every 18 to 24 months so we did i did that man i couldn't even tell you how many times it, it seemed like a, a, a metric ton but i don't think it was all that much um but it was kind of like just beating my head against the wall or you know just here we go again national training center with first brigade or first one eight infantry mechanized infantry you know just doing the same thing over and over and over again and um I did a lot of augmentation um, with our TAC-Ps that were aligned against the uh, 10th Special Forces Group uh, out, out there at Fort Carson, and um, loved it, man. Like, did some cold weather cold weather training <clears throat> with the ODAs and ODBs, which means you put on overrides and you're taking your M4 up to, I don't know, name your ski resort in Colorado, and you're skiing down the slopes, and everybody's, like, looking at you like you're... Like you're really, really a cool guy, and then the rest of the evening spent sipping beers and hot toddies in the hot tub with the team guys, right? So, and obviously we did some other things as well. But um, so when the opportunity came up to uh, go into back then what we called was soft tack P. Um, now obviously we've morphed that to ST tack P as well. Um, I got picked up for it, and I was under the impression I was a senior airman, man. I was an E four. And I was under the impression that I was going to get picked up. I was going to stay at Fort Carson and they're going to pull me into over there with the 10th group guys and hang out with the SF teens. Nope. Because I was a senior airman and this was pre-war. They're like, Hey man, congratulations. You've been picked up and you're on your way to the 17th air support operations squadron in Fort Benning, Georgia. And you'll be aligned against the 75th Ranger regiment. And I was like, Whoa, well, that's, that's not what my understanding was. Like, this is, this is kind of awkward. Um, and I had a couple of peers that kind of out promoted me a little bit. They were staff sergeants and they all went over to the SF side. I was like, it, and I'll be honest with you, fellas. I was on the verge of like canceling my orders. Like screw that. I'm not going to Fort Benning, Georgia. I do not want to be with Rangers because the stereotype on that side was high in tights and 25 mile road marches every other day. Right. No, I that's not that I did not want to be part of that. Um, but I did. I, and it, and it was probably, that was, the butterfly effect that probably set the set the motion in, in the course for the rest of my career and really probably my relationships as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we evolved into going into um, the Ranger side of things, but I would be remiss without mentioning that I did do 30 days in correctional custody. I did make senior airmen below the zone and I was an A1C a week later, airman first class um, all in the same time frame between NTC 
getting picked up from the ranger mission and all the stuff in between you know so i, I did do that so i so i have to i'd be remiss without saying that i do not believe in a one mistake air force um and the air force hadn't given me an extra chance there i wouldn't be here today either talking to you fellas yeah and for folks that don't know correctional custody is kind of like like jail for <laughs> for like a, a little bit it's like well it's kind of like going back to basic training but they're they're really not happy with you. Well, what I, I guess I don't know. What I learned really quickly when it comes to correctional custody, it's not a thing anymore, at least to my knowledge. But what I learned there is like if you're an NCO to a senior NCO and you get in trouble, they put you in charge of correctional custody. If you're a if you're a E four below and you get in trouble, they put you in correctional custody. The dude I had that was a master that was in charge of correctional custody, super nice guy, man. The guy kind of very, but he was very easy to manipulate too. Um, as a matter of fact, I ended up going home at the end of every day and coming back at five 30 in the morning while the rest of those clowns had to stay inside. Um, he would say things like airman case, you're a tech P you and I were both tip of the sphere. I used to guard radar sites in Alaska. I'm like, yeah, man, we're just like each other. Like totally get it, man. Like we breathe, we, you know, brothers. we have the same, we have the same language, man. Um, let's cut our hands and become blood brothers, man. And so I, <laughs> I use that, I use that to my advantage to kind of make my experience in correctional custody. Well, it wasn't amazing it wasn't the end of the world either you know i i ended up doing with stupid chores like the eighth air force history museum whatever's over there on peterson flooded out and the basement was all wet so like going there and dry stuff off down there and me and this security forces guy that was in there we would just sit in there and watch tv and call our wives on the phone that was down there and just kind of hang out uh, I, had, I had to go shred legal documents uh from the jag office there from legal office there and they put me in a closet with a just buckets upon buckets of files. And they said, just shred documents. Don't read any of them. Well, when you tell Airman Case not to read legal documents, what are you going to do? Um, so saw, saw some really interesting cases within the Air Force um, and some vindictive spouses back prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, making accusations of, of things that are actually okay in the long run. <laughs> you know, so, so, so yeah, I, I, I got to give a plug in there for correctional custody. And it was Peterson, was Space Command. They would do formation calls and talk to us in Klingon. And every time I would raise my hand, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you don't speak Klingon? Like, it was surreal. It was weird. Um, it was hilarious. And it's a great part of the testimony of the story here, right? So, <laughs> Thank goodness for correctional custody. Hey, I, I do have a question, though. The uh, You having experience with the Army pre-9-11, was there a big difference between the way that uh, uh, they treated the Air Force guys or y'all got along? you know, pre and post and, and has that relationship changed over the years? So what I remember one rotation when Nate Gesner was my supervisor, we went in there, we, we hadn't hit the field yet. We we're in the box yet. I didn't see him. So we walked into the battalion um, headquarters tent and they're going through briefings and stuff. And the battalion commander was in there smoking cigarettes like crazy. Like, like this is like 98, 99, whatever it was. And so Nate and I were like looking at each other like, well, if he can smoke cigarettes, maybe we should smoke cigarettes. So we're back there smoking cigarettes just like the battalion commander was. And the battalion commander was like, hey, Air Force, what are you guys doing? And Nate didn't get a chance to say anything. I'm like, smoking cigarettes like yourself, sir. He's like, you keep on, man. You just keep on. He's like, thank you for not kowtowing to me and just being a dude or being a person, right? Um, the other instance I remember, I was, back then the Air Force could wear camelbacks, man, because a little more common sense. The Army could not wear camelbacks. It was not an authorized duty. I'm like, you're out in the middle of the desert in July, man. Like, why would you not wear a camelback? Um, and it was this new invention, right? So I'm walking across the gravel in the cantonment area, doing my thing, and I hear this, like, hey, soldier, stop. I'm like, I don't who know who this guy's talking to. I'm not a soldier. I'm an airman, so I just keep walking. And, he, and I hear this about three times, and I finally hear the crunching of gravel behind me. And somebody's running up behind me, and I turn around, and I'm like, oh, hey, sorry, man. He's just like, who the hell do you think you are wearing a camelback? You know that's not authorized. I'm like, this dude like sprinted like 300 meters across open gravel to come ask me why I'm wearing a camelback or to berate me. And I was like, oh, sorry, sorry, Major. I'm in the Air Force. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, he's like, yeah, I get it, man. He was actually pretty cool. You know, and there's some um, senior enlisted as one, um, as we all know in this room here, that that some of us can be dicks. And, and he's like, hey, man, can you just do me a favor? Can you just put it on and throw your top over it, which is the way the Army could wear it? He's like, because... It's just going to influence my soldiers to do other things because he gave me the why, so to speak, versus just like yeah. chewing my ass up and down for no apparent reason. Cause I was in the air force. It was pretty cool. So I think two or three rotations at the national training center, the army nominated me as the hero of the battle, which is kind of a big deal when you're an airman, you get a command's coin and maybe an army achievement medal out of it. Um, so what, I, and what do I say that I say that because man, the army 
valued us. The army took us at face value. You know, they, they implemented us and, and I had great, but, but it goes back to the same thing, man. The NCYC is as with, or we're all Gulf war veterans. They had all integrated in a wartime environment with the army. And they knew how to do that. And, and so the transitioning in that time period of being in the talk or being out forward with the brigade reconnaissance teams, you know, or, or, you know, the AR stuff, like never did I have a, I don't think I've ever really had an issue um, with the army in general. Now I know people have, um, but I think a lot of it's personality based and personality dependent. And I think at the, the, at the end of the day, the objective is the same, whether you're air force army, I don't care what your branch of service is, the air, the objective is the same. I say this to my CSS team, like my, my admin troops all the time, whether you like it or not, you're part of the kill chain. Um, you know, and uh, the results, we all want the same results. We all want to kill the enemy and break stuff. And as long as you can do that and integrate with the army, yes, you, absolutely. I pull the Air Force card for a day off or whatever. So I'm not doing stupid army shit. Um, but that's at the, like to, to your point, Trent, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing, right? Um, yeah. Fast forward to my time in, um, hanging out with the Rangers. It's like, holy shit, man. I was sitting on an objective one night. This, this JFO, Joint for, uh, Fires Observer kid, comes up to me. He's like, Hey, Sergeant Case, um, just want you to let you know that before we rotate out here, my wife had a baby and we named him after you. You know, I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> like, like trying to look at this guy under nods. Like, I don't even know who this kid is, you know, on a target, you know, saying Roger over and over and over again. Um, so how do I take that on, on, on the X, man? I don't know, man. Like, cool. Thank you. Um, however, yeah, what if- Thomas is a very worldly name, <laughs> you know, so, so uh so yeah like i bro i need i need you to hold up i got an a10 coming in right now that you know like just give me a second okay well, he, he knows well as i do that going out on the x is the JTAC. you know you spend a lot of time saying roger over the mic and that's about it and sit in the middle of a courtyard yep uh, slapping camels on the ass or whatever but that's but that's one of the beauties like you that's why we are are good at integrating in what we do because we can speak Air Force, we can speak Army, we can speak Navy, Marines. We're not great at speaking each one, except for, I mean, we're great at speaking Air Force, but like the ability to translate and explain to the Army what's happening on the Air Force side of the house and then explaining to the Air Force what's happening on the Army side of the house, like that is those language barriers, believe it or not, for, for the folks out there, those language barriers exist. It is two completely different worlds, completely different languages, and we are like jammed right in the middle of, of all of them. And we have to be able to communicate in all aspects and understand what's going on. I'll tell you, when you're hanging out with the Army, you're either one of two things. You're either the hero or you're the fall guy. Um, and oh, yeah. There's in between. Because if you've ever sat through a warfighter exercise with the conventional Army... They do not care about capability. They care about butts and seats. Um, when I could provide the same capability with three dudes on an eight hour shift, they want 12 guys, 24 hours a day, you know? Um, and those are some of the growing pains that we're, that we will never grow out of. Um, it'll always be that constant battle um, on the army side of things. Uh, but yes, to your point, we spend a lot of time being linguists and translating yep. between sometimes multiple services, especially in the, in the high end joint environment. You know, which was uh, pretty crucial when I spent my time up the hill at JSOC being there. Um, so, yeah, um, the hero of the battle because the Army appreciated what we're bringing to the fights. Um, man, we, I don't know about you guys, man. I grew up as a kid. Um, I say I'm from Albuquerque. I was born there, but I actually spent most of my life as a kid in Socorro, New Mexico. And the reason why I just tell people I'm from Albuquerque because they're like, where? You know, and it's just a spot on the map about an hour south of Albuquerque there. And But, man, me and my best friend Eric and my brother, we grew up playing army, you know, we were out there in the woods playing yep. war, walking around with our um, M16s that look, that look real, <laughs> you know, um, gracious neighborhood. We had set up army checkpoints and search cars and the neighbors were cool with it. And they pulled over that, <laughs> search and stuff like that. you know, I mean, just, just, so I, I, I feel like my whole life has been a rehearsal for what I've been, what, what we've been doing for the last, you know, 20, 20 plus years. So, um, Yeah. I could just see little Tommy Case out there freaking halt. We were, Step out of your vehicle. We were doing that. We're like stopping cars in the middle of the, the road and like, oh, that's the Case kid or that's the Williams kid. Yeah, we'll play along. Oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> Mar- martial law again. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I know that you don't necessarily want to talk about it very much, but I'm sure you can communicate it very well. So 
and you don't you go into as much detail as you want, but because I don't know the circumstances of the first silver star that you want, and for for everybody that's out there, so they understand this, like, okay, so it's a big deal to be uh, to to do the actions that would involve being a recipient of one silver star. Like that's, that's a huge deal, like heroic actions, valorous actions, and, and to even be nominated for a silver star is a big deal. Um, Chief case has, has one silver star, but then later down the road, uh, through some badass actions actually is the recipient of two silver stars. So, in the Air Force, there are only three individuals that have have been recipients of silver two silver stars. Um, one of those was Sean Harvell, who has unfortunately passed away. Ish Viegas, who, yep, Ish Viegas is the other one who you know Needs pretty much everybody knows. Um, okay, I'm sorry, and no. then one by Tommy Case. So if you don't mind, oh, what were you gonna say? Well, I'd be remiss, you know, when I said it. Um, so to Sean, rest in peace, man. Tragic. Um, uh, that was felt across multiple communities. Um, and for Ish, if he's listening, like, dude, I need some hair tips because I can't seem to grow mine as well as you do. Um, case- dude, he's like a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah, man. So um, I got picked up. I was, I was, I was at the, I was in the support. I was aligned against the Ranger Regiments back then. It was the 17th Air Support Operations Squadron. And we had two sides in that squadron. The one side was conventional, and they're supporting the Third Brigade, um, Third Brigade at a Third Third Infantry Division. It was a uh, kind of a GSU there, um, and then you had the Ranger side, which was just a handful of us. We weren't very big at all. Um, I got there. I reported to betting. I think it was August of two thousand one. Well, you know, if and if I could hold a crystal ball, right? So we all know what happened a month later. Nine uh, eleven happened. And what I what I learned really really quickly with the Air Force, like if you, I had a line number for Staff Sergeant, about to get promoted that that following December to Staff Sergeant. What I learned really really quickly, like even when um, hostilities kick off, professional military education still trumps deployments. Um, so all the dudes I was with, they deployed to Pakistan and Afghanistan and stuff, and I went to Airman Leadership School. <laughs> hey, infuriating. But uh, man, did I. Um, not learn much. Um, so, cause I and, I, and I'm not, that's not a hit on PME in any way, shape or form, man. Like I think PME can provide, and I have to say as a chief these days too, right? Like I think PME can provide some, some value in regards to how we approach, um, things we're getting after as, as an, as an air force and a space force. But, but back then I was not necessarily focused on what PME had to offer me as an airman. Um, or Airman Leadership School, I was focused on like, man, I wish I was in Pakistan or Afghanistan right now. You know, and um, fellow Silver Star recipient, we'll get into here in a minute, Eric Brandenburg, Brandy, um, who's one of my supervisors at the time, they came back from their deployment. I graduated ALS. I was in the team room and he pulls out these jars and he's like, see this jar, TC? I'm like, yeah. He's like, this is Pakistan dirt. You'll probably never touch it. Ha, 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 ha. You know, and, and I, I, he did it in Jesse, and we all know the sense of humor we have in the across the one Zulu spectrum here. Um, he did it in Jess, but I don't think he. I, I probably never. I should probably tell him this, man. But but that like those words hurt, man. They they lit a fire in me. Like um, I don't think any of those guys ever realized. Um, and I deployed that following spring to Afghanistan, and they're like, "Where can we put Tom where he's not going to hurt anything? Like put him on the QRF down in Kandahar with two seven five with Alpha Company. He'll be with with a platoon from Alpha Company." Um, shout out to Sergeant Bannerman who led me and, and Barry out there that taught me how to use a 117 Fox out there. Cause I hadn't learned that. Um, and we did, we, we did a couple things out there and we re- recovered. Um, I got a total story on it, but in the sake of time, um, recovered dead Americans from a cl- crash C-130 out there and, and just all sorts of crazy stuff. But, you know, you fast forward to about the 2002, when I got back from that deployment, we started rattling sabers about going back to Iraq. You know, George Bush was in the White House, um, talking smack, if you will, in regards to the, to the to the Hussein regime and all that kind of stuff. And um, we're all praying it goes, you know. And I've got my own political views on whether the Iraq war was right or wrong at this point in my life. I was a little bit older, but we're all praying to go because we want to put our – we want to put – put our tools to the trade, man, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. so, so we deployed and, uh, we deployed into, um, on the border there of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Um, 
and we sat and we sat and we sat some more and we did so many static load training cycles every night of loading into MC-130s and C-17s for the big jump on back then what we called PSYOP, the Saddam International Airport, which is now Baghdad International Airport. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I'm so glad we didn't jump. So glad. Um, I think casualties would have been significant and broken bodies would have been significant. Um, so we didn't. So we got re-rolled. So we loaded up in a C-17. We took off and we flew into Iraq. I think this is about three weeks into the war, give or take, since the third ID started to push in from Kuwait. And, um, but I do remember sitting there at night, I'd be doing like call for fire training with the JFOs just with something to do out there. And man, we were watching planes go across the border. We we're watching uh, planes that got a couple of rounds put in their wings, landed where we we're at and then take off straight up in the air. Pretty sure we saw T lands flying across, you know, it mocks not. And, um, like, man, put us in coach. Right. Um, so we had a contingent of Rangers. Brandy was one of them that jumped into a, um, an austere uh, DLS out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then we air landed again. I'm probably the only dude with jump wings on the, uh, as a Ranger tag P who is, who's so proud of the fact that he doesn't have a mustard stain. <laughs> Cause I saw how fucked up those guys got <clears throat> um, like, thank God I don't have one of those. Um, but we air landed into H1 airfield out there in Western Iraq. And, uh, we walked down the tarmac for, for quite a ways. Um, and then we got to, I think it was bombed out probably in the first Iraq war, I guess. But the building's like literally full of goat turds, you know? So we spent most of the night just kind of shoveling those out and we slept outside. And I was bundled against next to my fire support officer, um, Captain Getke at the time. And we got a mission. And the way I understood it as a young staff sergeant, ETAC back then, and listed terminal attack controller, was um, we're going to drive out to the Syria border. And we're just going to freaking take out VizOp stations with close air support. So border control towers, if you will. And I was like, well, shit, man, that's a that's an ETAX freaking fantasy. Like, we're just going to, like, go do, like, static OP cast in the combat zone and, like, basically nuke it's easy. these border these border patrol agents, man. Like, <coughs> I was like, okay. And the reality was that we're, we're trying to secure that border to keep WMD from sneaking back across into Syria. Um so as we were kind of, if I remember right, man, it's like, granted, it's been, it'd be 20 years next year. And, you know, I've had a lot of significant emotional events between since then and now. Um, we got re-rolled mid-mission as we were rolling out that way. <clears throat> so, and I don't remember what it was. I just remember sitting in the back of the gun truck, the Humvee in the penalty box there with a couple of 240 gunners on the guns back there, just sitting there. And um, my uh, company commander, Dave Doyle, General Doyle now at JRTC, would be like, um, Hey, TC, you up on comms back there? I'm like, no, my radios were off. There was nothing but dark desert everywhere. I'm like, you got it, sir. He's like, anything going on? I'm like, nope, nothing's going on. He's like, okay, stay awake. <clears throat> you know? Stay awake. So we had a link up with this recce, recce unit out there in the middle of the desert. Um, Give a shout out to Ed Priest. I didn't even realize he was the, the CCT ETAC out there at the time. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Um. He's awesome. Yeah, he is. Um, so we went into a rest cycle um, for, for the remainder of the day, and it was like, all right, hey, radio watch. I was in the fire cell there with the company commander. Like, all right. And I told the guys, like, hey, when it's my turn to monitor the SAT channel, make sure I'm awake, man. Like, wake me up. And he's like, yeah, got it. Got it. Will do. Dude, I don't remember anything. I remember waking up, and the and the, the H250 handset was, like, laying on the ground next to me just with that slight static of a sat. I'm like, God, I hope no one called. Um, and they didn't, thank God. So I went with the company commander. Well, we woke up that morning. I realized that Brandy was there, another, you know, my boss. I was like, holy shit, dude. He's like, yep. You guys picked us up last night. I just jumped in back in one of the trucks. I'm like, okay. And actually, that was kind of a little bit of a – a little bit of a sigh of relief because I had somebody to kind of share the burden without even knowing what we're getting into yet. Right. I'm like, good. I'm glad he's here because he's, he was a, he's a super smart man. He, he's a, he's a good leader and he's a good ETAC, you know? And, um, so we went and linked up with the recce guys from a certain unit out there. And, um, we said, yeah, we were told we'd need to go secure and hold Haditha dam. And those guys like, you're going to go secure and hold that. And they're like, that's crazy. Like that's defended like by a brigade plus size of, Iraqi infantry and soft. We're like, yeah, well, that's what they told us to do. And I and I think the um, CENTCOM commander got on the line when he says, like, hey, you got any questions about this? And my commander's like, yeah, it's 
potentially defended by brigade. He's like, yep, you got your orders. Go secure it. We're like, shit, okay. <clears throat> so we had a couple from that recce element, they threw us a couple of EOD techs because what the, we were concerned about was that the, the dam was rigged to blow, which is in, would have completely flooded the entire fertile crescent of, of southern Iraq and would have stopped Third ID in their tracks of, of coming up for the, from the south. Um, so that's what we were concerned about. And um, so we went into planning that late afternoon, and we had Garmin E-Trexes, brand new to us at the time. And this is before the um, joint palsy came out, like you can't target with those things. Like we were nominating targets on this thing going in based off templated stuff from the intel officer back in the rear saying, yep, there's AAA here, there's AAA there, this stuff could be in direct lay mode, um, which is terrifying because I've had that done to me. And um, so we nominated all these targets. And before we rolled out, I looked up and there's just these contrails and these B-52, B-52s are, you know, about 15, 20 clicks away from us. While we're rolling through just smacking stuff. And yes. hats off to the J2, man, because the Intel dude or the Intel gal with their Intel team, because those lat longs we were passed up with those, with those Garmin's were pretty freaking accurate. Um, but the problem was, as we rolled in from the mission support site in the middle of the desert we're at towards Haditha Dam that night, all I had was a jog map, a 1 to 250 jog map. So for the listeners out there, it's, oh it's what God. an air crew uses to like, okay, this is an aerial map. It's not like a hiking map that you might be used to as a, as a, as a 1 to 50. And, and I had F-15s and we had a little birds as the escort package. And dude, with my red lens headlamp, and a jog map the size of Texas, bouncing in the back of a truck trying to come up with lat longs that passed to an F-15 to go look at um, prior to, this is, you know, 03. We hadn't developed all of our TTPs we use today. Um, it was a, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, but we got there. And I remember we got to the dam. We, we rolled by a bunch of smoking, smoldering hulks and stuff we had shacked with the B-52s that shacked from uh, the templates we had sent up. And... Um, we rolled through a lot of the, 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 you know, they got a lot of nomads out there, uh, Bedouin camps out there. And, man, there was T-72s and BTR 70s and 60s sitting out there, like, cold because the Iraqi soldiers were like, yeah, we're just going to come hang out with the Bedouins and not get not get killed. Um, smart move in the airport. So we would just roll right by and we didn't pay any attention. And, man, when we got to the dam, when we got to Haditha Dam, man, I would encourage anybody that's interested in the story, like, to Google Haditha Dam because it's massive. Um it's, I mean, it's massive. Like, we're out here in Vegas Beaches, and we got the Hoover Dam, right? And it's massive. Yeah. And what's so massive about it is, is, like, how deep it is. You know, it's an incredible work. Yeah, how tall. It's incredible work of engineering, if not work of art, man. Like, it's it's incredible. But the Haditha Dam, I think it was built by the Soviets in the 60s and 70s to generate power um, for most of most of southern Iraq there. And it's a four-lane hardtop across the top. It's not deep, but it's a four-lane hardtop, and it's massive. So... We get up there. We the driver hits the accelerator. Um, Brandy's section stops on the western BP. I think it was the west side, and they get engaged pretty quickly. Um, but we don't know the, the 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 intensity of that firefighter initially. We, and we roll through, and we, and we collapse on the spillway, like right on top of the dam. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck are we doing on top of a spillway, man? It's rigged to blow. Like we're gonna be surfing all the way down to freaking. Kuwait, man, like, why are we in the middle of this thing? Um, so we dismount, and these guards come out of the shack. I reckon we woke them up. And these guards come out, and, you know, and first time I, well, second time I shot my M4 at a bad guy and, and smoked a dude, and Rangers killed a whole bunch of them there, not a whole bunch, like seven or eight of them. And I'm walking around with this EOD guy from Bragg, and I'm like, what's he looking at? Like, what's he looking for? And so we walk over the spot, we look down and there's Pete, there's like Iraqi PT boats out there, patrol boats. And they're shooting at us. I'm like, what is like, and, and I'm trying to be all brave and like nonchalant, like next to this EOD guy from Bragg. And I'm hearing the crack of bullets going by my head. And finally, when the EOD guys, he's like, screw this dude, I'm not getting shot out here for this. And he gets down, he like hungers back. I'm like, that's a good call on my part. I'm going to do what he just did. Um, so, what happened was, is like, I'd been, we'd all been to Afghanistan at that point. We'd had little ruckuses here and there, but it was like a couple gunshots, maybe from an infield. This is part of the, the true violence of Afghanistan really came out of, in effect several years down the road. And I thought it was going to just be like another Afghanistan hit a couple pot shots. Things are secured. Life goes on. Right? No, man, it was a, it was a full on crescendo 
of what started off as pop shots and just escalated in this significant firefight that went on for over the period of about almost a week, about five days. And um, we had our own internal tech, PNET, and Brandy's like, hey, man, I can't get to it. Can you request cast for us? I was like, holy shit, man. Like, what is going on over there? They're about 1,500 meters away from us. So the old, the the trusty X-Wing sat antenna that everybody loves, man, that thing is a no-fail option in a, in a pinch, right? It was mounted on the gun mm-hmm. truck. I pick up the handset. I'm calling for cast, and I don't hear anything back. I'm calling back to the um, the soul in the in the in the AOC or little mobile AOC to head back at probably still in Saudi Arabia. I don't hear anything, and I look at the X-wing. You know, if you don't check the power, right? Check your connections. Check the antenna. Well, yep. the antenna was missing one of the radiating elements. So instead of an X-wing, we had a T-wing, and. I'm convinced it was shot off because there's no way anything got hung up on the, on the way it was, right? Uh, I didn't have time to inspect it either. I was like, well, this isn't good. And we had the, I think we had just got the little DMC-125 Coke can set in 10. Little I'm like, I don't have time to set that yep. up at the moment, even though that thing is pretty muddy too. You just throw on the ground and you're going to radiate. And um, so I called back. I was like, hey, this is whatever I was, Striker. Can't remember who I was, Striker, whatever. Um, we're in significant contact, objective Cobalt, ejective links. We need immediate casts. And I hear nothing back. I'm like, if you receive this message, please key the hand mic twice. And man, guardian angel, I heard a click, click. And I was like, I know cast is en route. And F-16s checked on. Brand, I pushed into Brandy like we should have, like we were supposed to do. Um, and then we start getting these mortars from these little islands out there. It's a, it's a grouping of islands out there and they're mortaring us. And I'm like, so Brandy tries talking the pilot onto those islands out there. I tried talking the pilot onto those islands out there. He could not pick it up. Couldn't even see the, the plume of when they were launching rounds at us. Could, just couldn't pick it up because it was the way the islands were laid out. <sighs> My first experience with the javelin army ranger, but oh. the javelin puts that clue on that motherfucker and launches that freaking missile out there. <laughs> Marks the target. The airplane is like, "Yep, I see him. In, I'm in from the west, or in from the east, whatever it was. We're like cleared hot, right?" Um, so, so it was just incredible. It, you know, I, and I want to talk about those those patrol boats. You know, they're they're lighting us up. Um, really, they're making more noise than actually being effective because the way the angle was where we were at. And I was trying to put casts on them, and they would roll out to the to the lake and try to get a better angle, a big better angle on us. I was talking F-14s. I was talking um, different assets, and they're like, "Yeah, we have." We can't. We have GBU twelves, and because the way the lake is, you know, doing this on the, in the, you know, the trough of the wave, and everything else, we can't lock on. I was like, okay, we, you know, we wasted a couple bombs trying to figure that out. Strafe wasn't working, um, and then I had British Harriers check on. Those dudes, like, yeah, we got Mark eighty two airbursts, and they put airbursts on those boats and sunk them oh. immediately. Um, freaking bloody brilliant, and it is what a brilliant. What a, what a brilliant <laughs> um. I, and I did. I did have a combat controller with me. Um, God, I wish I remembered his name. I want to say it's Luke Thompson, but I think Luke went with me to JFCC or JTEC QC back in the day. Um, but I hadn't really worked with combat control up until that point, and all I heard was like the tug of war between TACP and combat control on an ODA or with the Ranger team or whatever be the case, like fighting over who who was the lead for cast, like just stupid shit, man. And uh, he jumped in the truck with me before we left H1. And, and I said, he's like, yeah, I'm the comic controller. I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay. I said, then we need to, we need to, we need to find our lines of delineation now. Like, what are you responsible for? Like, what am I responsible for? He's like, dude, I'm here to set up HLZs and get resupply in and do this and do that, do that. He's like, he's like, you're the fire supporter. I'm like, that was, that was super easy. easy. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, is, the amount of close air support we were controlling up on Haditha Dam, I finally looked at him and I said, are you, are you ETAC certified? He's like, yeah. I was like, would you like some of this? I was like, this is just too much. He's like, I would love to. Um, so myself, him and a guy named Eric Lund, who's the FSNCO, we got this really great groove going on where one of us would be on the soft lamb. We burned up three soft lambs out there. Like one of, us, one of us would be on the soft lamb, lazy targets. The other would be controlling the strike, and, and, and the other one would be spotting, you know, for wings level and everything. Like all these things that we're doing. And we dropped so much ordnance um, 
in and around Haditha, there was so much battle haze and smoke on that valley floor. Lazing became completely ineffective. So everything they advertise to for our lasers that we use to, to dedicate to mark targets, man, they're true. It's true, man, because when you have that much smoke down there, um, it, you just can't, it's just not effective. Man, I, I remember dropping bombs on, on dudes forming up, Iraqi soldiers forming up and, you know, and the squad in platoon size, they're ready to come our way. And you drop bombs on them and the bomb hits right in the middle of them. They all get thrown in the air and then set, many of them get up, just kind of dust themselves off and just keep doing it. Um, man, we had S60s, which is AAA, you know, uh, anti-aircraft artillery put in direct lay mode at us. I remember specifically, Peaches, is I'm on the spillway. I got this con kind of like a tea barrier, this concrete tea barrier that you look over and you see the, the, the hydro stuff of the dam coming out of it. I'm on this spillway and I hear, and I see these tracers coming at us and I know it's an S60 and I see these tracers coming. I'm like, Oh, I got a quick second, man. I don't have to react to that just yet. And then I would get down and impact the wall, take out a little bit of brick or a little bit of cement here and there. And then I started thinking to myself, Tom, don't be an idiot, dude. Like for every tracer, there's probably three more rounds in front of that thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, so a lot of valuable lessons learned in that regard in, 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 in the fact that like, you just learn so much about yourself, man. And, and I'll tell you my first, um, this is such a, a moral of the story is right. My first like real world live fly or, um, 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 fast cast control was an F 16 call sign Darby five, four. On Haditha now, we got this, this, um, this Iraqi version of an LMTV, a cargo truck, barreling down that four lane high top at us. Um, I think Livade and Ripito had just been killed not too long before that with a suicide bomber um, at one of the checkpoints coming into the dam. So that was resonating with us, and we're like, we don't know what's in this truck. Um, so I'm controlling an F-16. I give him the truck. It, it already got, it was between us and another blocking position on the east side. And, um, but we have a little bit of time, but it's, it's, it's picking up speed. It's barreling down the, 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 the flat top up there on top of the dam. And we're all shooting small arms on everything else. And I'm controlling at the same time. And I tell Darby Fire 4, he's like, yeah, I got the target. Go through the whole thing of, of that piece. Uh, this is in the early days of the invasion of Iraq. I'm looking medium altitude up thinking he's going to be up at 20,000 feet. And I hear the cannons open up on the f-16 because it sounds like a zipper being ripped off and i'm like mm -hmm. what is and i look around and like the truck's still barreling down and i look over and i see darby 5-4 at the top of, you know just above the lake just screaming across so basically a high angle strafe and what happened was is what he engaged was the blocking position of rangers on that east side blocking mm -hmm. position but not a single ranger got hit Fucking oh my grace gosh. god man the Rangers thought it was the greatest thing in America, and they're all screaming and ranting and like, "Yeah, America!" You know, and all you know, doing you know, being Rangerific. And I'm ter I'm mortified, man. I'm I'm terrified. And I'm like, Darby Five Four, I did not give you permission to release. I did not clear you in any way, shape, or form. You need to get the hell out of here. Go check in with whoever. And my commander, my my company commander, Dave Doyle, he looked at me and he's like, "TC, I saw what happened. You didn't do anything wrong." I need you to have confidence and get back on the mic and keep controlling. I was like, holy cow, man. Like the, the, the faith that this guy is putting in his ETAC in his air force guy is tremendous. And that's probably cause I was a little shaken from that, man. Like, like where did I go wrong? Or was the pilot just, you know, hungry, you know, like what's going on? Like all these things, like you know, I'm, I'm second guessing myself. Um, he's like, I have faith in you. You didn't do anything wrong. That's on the pilot. So you just keep doing it. That's exactly what we needed, man. That's exactly what we needed in that moment to carry that momentum forward over the next three to four days. You know, and that's what we did. We, you know, we, at night, Iraqis would come in and probe the lines. Rangers would open up on them. They'd die. Um, we, we had a metric ton of POWs. Man, and the, the, the absolute brutality of this regime, man. Like these guys, a lot of them are like kind, kind of like con conscripted for the war, you know, on the Iraqi side. And, and they're like, yeah, man, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm hanging up the hat, man. I'm gonna go surrender to the Americans. Like their commanders would cut their ears off to make them stay, would cut their noses off to make them stay, and we would, we would ground these guys up as POWs. Just the absolute brutality. So from that aspect, I understood what we were doing because this is just brutal. 
But the, from the other aspect is I also am a firm believer that sometimes certain nations need need a dictator just to keep them in line, which has been proven over the since, I don't know, 2012-ish. Um, <coughs> so that was kind of, you know, um, Mark Foster, another good friend of mine, he was a seco, and they came through after a couple of days of fighting Haditha Dam at night just to kind of do a bomb damage assessment of everything we destroyed down there. And I, he's up on the, the internal tech P net with me, and he's like, Jesus, Tom, it's like freaking, it's like a nuclear bomb went out down here. Like, we decimated that place. But because there was power plants and all those other infrastructure out there, we didn't touch it. One of, the thing, one of those things, you know, we waged war around all these high-value things that kept the, the civilian civilian civility intact, you know, with, with power and, and, and plumbing and all those things that those people need. Never touch those things. And we kept the dam running the entire time. It was never running the explosives, at least not to my knowledge. They had a massive chow hall down there. So when the Ranger Reconnaissance guys came up, um, we gave them some, some potatoes and they made French fries. Um, they had a shower down there. We found massive amounts of toothpaste. Like, so it was, it was a pretty good fob, Ford operating base kind of at the end of the day. But um, um, and the last thing I'll say about the Haditha Dam piece was uh, we got artilleried for eight. We got over... I don't remember, it was 400 rounds of artillery in a six-hour period. And what we, what happened was, is we'd see uh, Willie Pete round come in as a marking round. And, you know, we were worried about chem, chem warfare at the time, too. We fought the entire time in our J-list. We, I had my chem suit on and, and running, you know, oh, patties and a brown shirt on. But it was April, so the weather was completely cool with it. It wasn't bad, March and April. And um, so we watched this white smoke go off. Then we like, is that chem? And then we'd see a dog run through it. And we like, okay, there's a lot of wild dogs out there. We're like, okay, oh, yeah, we're, lots good. Of them. we're good. And we spent a, an enormous amount of time of just with spotty scopes trying to find these observers. And we would find them up in the corners of um, apartment buildings that was overlooking us several clicks away. And we would put 30 millimeter, 20 millimeter rounds in those buildings in order to keep the CD concerns low. Um, and then finally the, the, the Ranger Reconnaissance team out there, Sean O'Neill, um, was attacked P with him um, um, after uh, Scott was killed. Um, the uh, and they were able to to find those. I think they're about twenty five clicks away, just rocking us, man. Um, Jeez. We we left the dam. Um, Exfil back to H one. A new company came in, and then eventually. Uh, I think the Marines, either the 101st or the Marines came in and secured it um, after the the heavy fighting was pretty much done. Um, and the, and that's a testament of, of the, the Rangers, man. They have, they have so, they have morphed so much since 9-11, man. Like, like they've gone from what we thought Rangers did, even though that wasn't necessarily true even then, to what they do today as a premier raid force, you know? Um, um and to watch it and to be part of that, you know, one of the most historic raids of in Ranger history was Haditha Dam. And to be part of that is freaking awesome. Um, Hell yeah. And to watch him go from a special operations raid force and quickly transmorph, more, transmorph into that conventional infantry force of, 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 you know, force on force was pretty cool, man. And, you know, I, I got back to H1. I did another mission where we went out and helped them put out some um, oil well fires up there north that the regime had lit on fire. And then we had this place, man, excuse the term, I didn't name it, man. They called it the ARCOC, the Ranger Combat Operations Center back at the airfield we launched out of. So I went in there, I pulled a couple of shifts, you know, just to see what was going on. And, and we're still eating MREs. And I would go into the ARCOC in the, in the floor there, and I would look for an MRE. Of course, all the good ones are always gone. It was always like the vegetarian meals and the ones that nobody liked, the bean, the bean burrito thing, like just like awful. So I, I was getting pissed, man, because I never got I, – I was living off the MRE hamburger out there for, month, for, for a month, you know. And, Dude, uh, where's the Chili Mac at? <laughs> they were all gone. Um, so of course they were. I saved all yeah. the vegetarian nasty meals that nobody wanted, and I got a box, an MRE box, and I stacked them inside there. And I, we had super glued part of our kits, and I super glued it shut and put the, and slid the bands back on. I'm like, I'm just going to watch this go down to the, in the entry of the, of the ARCOC there. And I was sitting there, and here comes General Retired Joe Votel, who was the regimental commander at the time, and his sergeant major. And they come in, and, he, and sergeant major's like, hey, sir, you want Emory? He's like, yeah, yeah, 
yeah, sir, yeah, just grab me one, whatever. So I'm, I'm watching General Votel, Colonel Votel at the time, cut the bands, open it up, and he pulls one out, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, what the fuck? You know, he's just surrounded by MREs, like 12 MREs or whatever it was, of just things that nobody wants to eat, and I'm just dying laughing, man. And, and what do I say? Because... Like a couple things with the Haditha Dam story, and you know, and you just got a snippet of it there, you know. But now you understand kind of the basis of it and what it was. But man, you, it, it, as you guys well know, man, you find humor in combat, right? You find things that are going to make you laugh and make you smile and make you giggle. Man, I remember sitting up on Haditha Dam with Eric Lund, the FSNCO, and we're looking across this this um, this orchard full of palm trees, this palm orchard, and we're just sitting there. We're like, holy shit, it's beautiful up here, you know? Yep. And he's like. Yeah, man, it really is, you know. And then we we we'd have the moment of intensity was a ser- severe serious firefight going on around us, and we just start laughing, you know, because that it's a coping mechanism, man. Like like you just laugh because well, what else are you gonna do, um, and whatnot. And um, the last thing I will say about Haditha is that was the first time I ever controlled bomber casts full of JDAMs, and it was I was terrified. Um, <clears throat> we had all these probing points that were coming in at night. And the commander's like, how do we hit those simultaneously to distract and dissuade and kill people trying to come through there? I was like, well, we can send up a requester for a B-52. He's like, okay. So me and Eric sat down with our Garmin e tresses and started genning up lat lungs. They come back like B-52's denied, but we got a B-1 coming. And it's loaded a bear with, with uh, um, JDAMs. I'm like, okay. So the cool thing about bomber casts is there's nothing fast about it. Right, if you have the time, bomber cast is okay. I'm okay with it. Any plane can do mm-hmm. close air support. And uh, I, I pass them all these coordinates. It was like 18 or 20 coordinates. They read them all back to me, uh, which takes forever. I'm like, all right, bone ones in from the from the north. I was like, okay. And you know that that in call from a B1 or from a B52, it takes a long time for them to get from where they start at to where they're going to employ. And uh, I give them the cleared hot, and I before I did that, I looked at Captain Doyle at the time. I said, hey, sir, I'm just going to let you know I've never done this before, so I don't know exactly what's going to happen. And I hope that me and Eric Lund's freaking lat longs are correct because we checked, checked, and double-checked. He's like, all right, and he puts a call out over the assault net or the command, and he's like, everybody get your heads down. We don't know what we're dealing with here, something along those lines. And that B1 comes across, and you can hear it, and then you're just sitting there, and then you just start seeing things just blow up. Boom, like all these all over the place because where these JDAMs are flying to. And there's a video of it, man. And you just like, like the Rangers, like, oh, shit, man, that's awesome. And I'm in the back, you can hear me. I'm like, take that, you fuckers, you know. And um, and then those bombs just started creep, creeping more and more south towards the residential area. And I, 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 I aborted the rest of the passes, but we met the intent. And that was the first time okay. I'd ever done B1 cast or bomber cast in general. And it was pretty freaking glorious, man. I'm kind of a fan when you have the time to do it. They're not, they're not super reactionary, but for a pre-plan opportunity, they're pretty amazing uh, when it comes to that stuff. So yeah, that's kind of the the Haditha Dam story, um, in a nutshell. Um, Trent Joy was one of our senior airmen. He was augmenting us. Uh, later became a special tactics officer, hanging out and I think getting ready to retire. Just retired out there in in the board of Panhandle. Um, and I think he was running around just taking dumps in Iraqi helmets he found, um, whatever else, um, you know, it's like, that's hearsay hearsay. It is. It's all hearsay. And I'll, I'll disclaimer that with like the things you do in the moment and in those types of environments and combat zones, like the things you do, you do it as a, as a stress relief. Um, saying cleared hot on the range is a great stress relief, right? Saying cleared hot on the battlefield is a stress multiplier. Um, and I think that's the huge difference because when we got back to the States not too long after, like, hey, we got to go out to the range and do some cast training um, on Fort Benning. And a couple of us were like, oh, really? Like, it was so hard to transition from, like, doing the deed in the show to going back and rehearsing for the show again. You know, so that, yeah. that was that was kind of Silver Star number one. Um, um, that was the Army, um, the Air Force wrote that one, I believe. Um, and it was awarded the following just before Christmas of 2004. And they did it in conjunction with not only us, but also our squadron commander at the time, Colonel Fairchild, who was the F-15 driver with Kevin Vance and Gabe Brown up in Anaconda. 
Um, Jeez. So he got his silver star for supporting um, Kevin Gabe um, in, in those endeavors um, a couple years prior. And then we had Shropshire there with us too, getting recognized for the stuff he did with the uh, third infantry division. Anybody know Shropshire. Shropshire. Yeah. He's only two feet tall. So you'll miss him. He is, um, but just kidding. Shrop, if you listen to this, I love you, buddy. Um, I don't know where he's at these days, but yeah, he's, he's still taller than me, but uh, yeah, he's a, he's a little, he's a little hobbit as well. Yeah. He's hanging out in Oklahoma doing CrossFit stuff. So. <laughs> well, good on him. Well, uh, TC man, I like, you've got so much to tell and and you're a phenomenal storyteller. So what I want to do is I want to break right now and just kind of close up this podcast and then have you back on for a part two, because I I promise you people are going to eat this up and it's, and for me, this is, this is amazing. Uh, And I know it is for Trent too, but like, this is amazing for me because it, it takes me right back to when I was doing cool stuff because I was, I was there during that time. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't, you know, near Haditha, but you know, I was in Baghdad and, and then, you know, early in Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's, uh, it's therapeutic for me as well. It's so, therapeutic um, to tell it too. Every time I tell the story, there's a little more therapy involved for me. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and even with part two, well, we could talk about it a little bit too, because the scars you carry, um, and I would like to close out with this. When my oldest son graduated high school in 2015, um, my parents were out and, you know, we celebrated him. This is where I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina time and time, at the time. And I'm sure vodka had something to do at the time, but man, I got super, super emotional um, with my mom sitting there and my wife sitting there on the back patio, you know, on a decent June night in, in, in North Carolina. And man, I'll tell you, like all these emotions just came, came out about like the stuff in Iraq and some other stuff we had done um, because it's very easy to the listeners out there. It's very easy to, the job's not hard. What we do is not hard. I think getting to do the job is probably the hardest part at the end of the day, uh, physically and mentally, but doing the job's not that hard if you have half a brain. But it's very easy to get what I like to refer to as a God complex when you're out there. Um, because what you're bringing, what you bring to the fight is tremendous. And man, we have senior airmen um, who who are shouldering this responsibility of delivering massive amounts of ordnance and that responsibility even for us, whether you're a senior airman or a master sergeant is tremendous. Um, and it's easy to get a God complex and it's easy to, to, to easily stray from the overall intent of the mission and just start killing shit, you know, and I'll, I'll leave it with right, wrong or indifferent. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and what we talk about when you, you mentioned senior airmen, we're, we're talking about 19 year olds. Yeah. Like they could be 19, 20 year olds that are, that are making these decisions um, and put into situations that are, uh, that are fantastic, uh, both on the good and bad spectrum Absolutely. Um, situations. So uh, Tommy, really appreciate your time. Thanks for like, it's, it's amazing. I'll, I'll go ahead and schedule part two with you here once we close out. But um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Everybody that's out there, uh, please leave a review subscribe, hit the bell, um, check out the merch store, and, uh, and we're out here. Thanks again, DC. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.